Nine out of ten hiring managers are having difficulty hiring today. Robert Half is here to help. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Coming up on Money Beat, the big event this weekend is the French presidential election. We will break down what it means for France, for Europe, and for the markets. And also, earnings season is basically over for the banks. Who won, who lost, and where do all of them go from here? We'll talk about that next. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Now from our studios in New York, here are Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser. France goes to the polls on Sunday, the first step in electing a new president. It is a tight and contentious race with ramifications for that country, for Europe, and for the markets. Bonjour, Money Beatez. Welcome to Money Beat. Paul Vigna, Stephen Grosser here in the studio in New York. I, I'm quite impressed. When you get a little bit of free time before we start, when there are delays, you get to write out your script. I do, huh? huh? Not not half bad. Not no, half no, bad. It's almost like you're professional. I truly am not. Uh, to help us, because we are not uh, in France, we're not in Paris, we're not in Europe, to help us figure out what is going on and give it to you, we have two of our colleagues from overseas, John uh, Mike Bird and John Sindro. Gentlemen, how are you? Not too well. Bad, thank you. Thanks, guys. Uh, great. Let's let's see. Uh, I, I guess should we. I mean, I think just break it out. Yeah. You know, for the American audience. For the American audience, uh, John, why don't you pretend that we are? And, and in the case of, of Grocer and I, it is not too far from the truth. Pretend that we are ignorant and uh, pretty stupid. And why don't you just kind of uh, basically give us the layout of this one? Well, I, I don't think I can pretend that it's it's just it's too hard <laughs> a fictional scenario. But um, I mean. Basically, what we have is another round of uh, these contentious European elections uh, where Eurosceptics or sort of skeptics of globalization are feared to get the upper hand. Uh, the question is a little bit whether this will be closer to the Dutch election, which we saw that the Eurosceptic candidate sort of fell short of expectations, or it will be just another surprise, a little bit like Donald Trump or, or even Brexit. And uh, the, the truth is that we're not sure. Uh, France has a peculiar uh, election system, which they've been using since 1962. They, they use it also in the sort of parliamentary elections, but uh, in the presidential elections, which is the case uh, right now, it means that we have two rounds and all the candidates run in the first round and then there is a runoff, which will be on May the 7th. Uh, so what we see this Sunday is just going to be the first round of this. We'll see, I would say, four candidates which with, with, with sort of chances of going through the second round. And we're not sure whether uh, Marine Le Pen, which is the Eurosceptic candidate in this case, the Front National um, candidate, uh, we don't know whether her chances have been inflated by the fact that she's running against so many people and then the theory holds that, you know, everybody will turn against her in the second round and she doesn't really have a chance. But we, the truth is that, that we don't know. And, and markets have also sort of been wondering these questions. That was going to be my, my next question is how the market's been, um, you know, reacting to this election in the run up here. So one of the interesting things, uh, the ways that people have been watching this is the, the spread in yields between uh, French and German uh, government debt. So if you look at the spread on the 10-year, 
benchmark government bonds. It's blown out in the in the early months of this year. It reached, I think, at its steepest. It was about uh, three quarters of a percentage point. The sort of normal level for that is usually about a fifth of a percentage point. So it's ex- it's it's not extreme, but it's certainly showing some elevated risk there. You've seen some measures like uh, risk reversals for the euro, showing that investors are paying quite a lot for protection against a sort of potential sharp fall in the euro. There hasn't been that much action in the equity market, um, but certainly things in, in fixed income and FX have, have shifted a little bit. And those are the sort of markets that, that people are really, really paying attention to for a reaction immediately after the results come out. I think they'll be coming out about 2 p.m. New York time. We should get the exit poll um, on Sunday evening. What have the polls... Yeah. Sort of We've been also sa- seen some protection, oh, uh, like Mike was talking about the options market when it comes to the to the currency. We've also seen some protection on the equity market. Like not the equity market hasn't moved, but we've seen some protection on uh, investors sort of uh, paying money to to protect against swings against this. And one of the funny things is that they're paying more to protect against swings after this first round Sunday than after the definitive election um, in three weeks' time. So um, it, it kind of means that we might see some some action after after this one. Um, what, are, what are the polls sort of saying now? Um, what are they indicating? Uh, the polls have been very, very tight for, for quite a long time. Usually you have the, the two major mainstream parties in France, um, which have won every election for you know, the last... Several, I'm not sure exactly how many, but you have the, the main centre-right and centre-left parties. Francois Hollande, the president of France now, is one of the, the centre-left party candidates. Um, he's not running in this election, but the, the difference this time is that the centre-right and centre-left candidates are relatively unpopular in comparison to uh, the positions they've ever held before. You have Marine Le Pen, who's the, the sort of the far-right candidate, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the far-left candidate, and Emmanuel Macron, who's a centrist former economy minister, all potentially coming out in, in first and second place in the first round. And they're all polling between sort of around 18 and, and 23%. So the, the band between those four candidates is really narrow and there could be turnout issues, things like that. We really don't know at this point who who's ahead. Um, people like Macron in the betting markets. People think Macron is going to be the next president. They think he'll get through into the second round and, and if he's against the pen, he'll win. Um, but really the polls are incredibly tight and you have four candidates that are, that are probably bumping along around 20% somewhere and it's very difficult to tell who's going to come out on top. You might also remember uh, François Fillon, who was uh, the man, yeah. the, the conservative candidate uh, who was uh, in all these sort of front pages because of that scandal surrounding right. him hiring his wife. Well, he, I mean, his candidacy looked like a lost cause, and, and you know, some people were sort of hoping he'd be replaced by, by uh, Juppé, who is like this also very sort of all-time politician. Truth is, he's still pulling around 20%. Uh, I mean, sure, no, people don't expect him to win, but it's within the realm of possibility that any of these four people that we've mentioned might might win and and and, and might sort of or might come in in the first two places and might run against each other. Uh, so, so it's a bit unpredictable. Um, and we've even seen this week markets fearing that maybe it might even be Le Pen against Jean-Luc Mélenchon. So it could be sort of the more far right versus, you know, more to the left than, than markets like. But so both two Eurosceptic candidates, basically. Yeah. Yes. yeah and, and, and that's kind of interesting, too. I mean, 
whatever happens this weekend, there clearly is going to be a runoff. Well, unless one gets 50 percent, right? If one gets 50 percent, do we still have the May 7th vote? No, uh, no, no, no right. I don't believe that we do, but I don't think we're going to come anywhere right, near right, right, anyone right. getting so, close to so, I mean, outperforming for these guys, they'd be coming in really strong relative to their polls if they picked up sort of in the high 20s right, or 30% right. of the vote. So, so the, the point is, this is one step. There will be another one. I'm wondering, though, you know, look, we saw a... a Extremely surprising vote last summer when you when in the UK they went to the polls over Brexit. We saw a surprising vote here in the United States when we had our presidential election, and and those were you know the, the markets got over it. We all got over it. I, I'm wondering though, France, in terms of where it sits within the eurozone, within Europe, uh, you know, what are the real stakes in this election for Europe, for the future of Europe? I, I would say the difference higher, between higher than anything else, yeah. um, because Marine Le Pen has pledged to break up the euro. It's it's uh, it's unclear whether she would be able to without support of the National Assembly. But but she does have a plan to to destroy the single currency, and that definitely is a bigger risk than anything else we've we've sure. seen. Mike, I'm yeah, sorry, that's, you're John's, John's right there. I mean, I've I've spoken to quite a few investors who've raised this question of, you know, we all expected a big sell-off on Trump, and then, you know, it was reversed right. before U.S. markets even opened, really. Um, I, I don't think that would be the case with Le Pen or Mélenchon, just because, as John says, that, that Euro breakup risk in 2011-12, everyone saw what happens when you get the fear that this thing is going to fall apart, that a country is going to leave. Um, and I'm not really sure that anyone thinks the Eurozone can continue without France. You know, right. it's the second biggest economy. Um, it's sort of in terms of its performance has been somewhere between Germany and some of the other Southern European countries since the crisis. Um, and it, I don't know how much sense the Eurozone makes without France in it. Whether, whether Le Pen could actually manage that, um, you know, the, the French like the euro, uh, about two-thirds of French people, I think, in the latest Eurobarometer survey said that they supported remaining. Um, so uh, it may not be likely, but it would certainly put a lot of stress on markets, I think. Yes, uh, I think that we... Uh, the thing is that it's a very unlikely event, so markets right. basically are counting on that. Like yeah. it's, it's very unlikely it will happen, but I don't think we can stress enough how big the disruption would be if it did happen, because who would hold a deposit you know, in an Italian bank or a Spanish bank if they thought that the euro, there's a good chance that it's going to disappear. Like, yeah. the, 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 the massive outflows we'd, we would see from southern European banks right. and assets, like, they're, they're hard, I believe, to, to sort of even imagine. Uh, so what's keeping this whole thing together is, as Mike was saying, well, nobody really thinks that can happen. Mm -hmm. But if that scenario becomes a realistic possibility, this will be much bigger than anything we've seen. Oh, I mean, you'd have to have bank holidays, right? And things like that if the euro was to disappear. Sure. Let's just sort of take a step back and go through oh, yeah, the scenarios that we could see on, on uh, Sunday and, what they, and what the, how, the, how the markets are you know, possibly going to react and what it means for the euro. So I think the, the, the sort of central expectation at the moment is that 
you have Emmanuel Macron and Marine Le Pen enter the second round. Marine Le Pen has been odds-on to enter the second round of the elections, come either first or second in the first round, for something like four years now, pretty much all the polling since 2013-14 has had her at that level. Um, that sort of outcome... If it's around the levels that polls are suggesting now, you may not get a massive move in the euro if the polls have been accurate. What people will really, really be looking out for is outperformance by Le Pen. If Le Pen's polls have been underestimating her support, then the concern for investors will be if they've underestimated it in the first round, they're probably underestimating it in the second round. There's a higher potential that she could win. You might see it sell off um, the euro. Um, on the other hand, if, uh, and this is a less likely outcome according to the betting markets and according to the polls, you see, say, uh, Emmanuel Macron and Francois Fillon, the centre-right candidate, enter together and, and Marine Le Pen doesn't make it through, then that could be, you know, very, very positive for the euro. Mm. Yeah, um, then there's the issue as well of which assets will truly move around in the longer term? Because, uh, I mean, I remember talking about this uh, with, with you when, when we talked about Brexit and, and how people were sort of focusing on, on the pound to trade Brexit. In this case, people are doing the same. Uh, they're focusing on, as we were saying at the beginning, in a, a few assets, you know, what will the euro do? What will, uh, you know, the credit spread of bonds do to the extreme that, some markets become dislocated, uh, as in, uh, you know, the corporate bond market, for example, has been pretty much unruffled, which is strange considering that it trades above the sovereign market. But the question is, will the euro truly move that much if Le Pen were to win? Immediately, we can presume that there will be a large reaction, but over the longer term, the, the money that moves away from France or even Italy and Spain is very likely to go to Germany or, or the Netherlands, and, and which means will remain inside the euro. So even if the euro is, is, is set to disappear, we don't know what that actually means for the euro's strength versus the dollar, because it might just be reflecting the future strength of the Deutsche Mark. Uh, what we do know is, is that the bond markets would go completely AWOL. If the markets sort of get the outcome that they're, I think, you know, hoping for and somewhat expecting. Does that sort of clear the way, especially for like European equities? Because Europe's economy is starting to show, you know, signs of recovery. And, you know, investors in the U.S. have been moving money into Europe under the idea that stocks there are undervalued. Is this, could this be a, like sort of a clearing the runway for European stocks if, it get, if the markets get their outcome? I think you could certainly see that. It's been interesting to see those flows come back, even though everyone at the start of the year was saying, oh, there's too much political risk. And, and now, for people who are really looking for opportunities, if you do think that U.S. equity, for example, is, is overvalued, then Europe might look more attractive. France, actually, the, the uh, purchasing managers index that it had this morning, I think, for both services and manufacturing was the strongest in five years. Um, so there's certainly hints at some economic momentum there if you think that that's going to translate into somewhat tighter monetary policy, but unemployment is going to start falling. Then you look at things like European banks, which are, you know, the valuations are extremely cheap. Now, it depends. You know, they're cheap if you think those banks are going to make some money in the future. Um, yeah, I can see how that would be attractive. And, and getting this out of the way, people talk about the other elections that we have later in the year. But I mean, the German election really, even even if Angela Merkel didn't win, 
she wouldn't be replaced by a candidate from either the populist right or left. She'd be replaced by a candidate from the mainstream centre-left. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think that would really be market negative. So, yeah, this, this could clear the runway. If you're concerned about political risk in the Eurozone, basically, if that's the reason you're not investing, this is the big event for that. The real cloud remaining would be Italy. We don't know if they'll have an election later this year. Probably it might even be the the next. But uh, I'd say investors are now sort of very concerned about, you know, Italy, what's going on with its banks? Why is the economy in Italy not recovering, even as the rest of the Eurozone seems to be a little bit? So as Mike was saying, we might very well see a rally, but it will also depend on what the narrative is around what goes on in Italy and, and, you know, whether... International investors, they have like more of these complications that they sometimes don't, don't understand, which I would say is the problem with, with these elections, which is that global investors, they, they have a hard time measuring this stuff. Right. And, and if, if the feeling that this is gone goes away, then, then we might see a rally. Um, if you know, the feeling that Italy is still a basket case um, is strong, we might maybe see a more muted reaction. We have been talking about the French presidential election this weekend with Wall Street Journal reporters Mike Bird and John Chindro. Gentlemen, I know it's late there overseas. I appreciate you guys take, staying, you know, staying a little later. I know you're going to have a busy weekend, so uh, thanks for taking some time to talk to us. Our pleasure. Thanks very much. Thanks a lot. All right, and everyone, uh, stay tuned because we will be back. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com Claude today. For more insights, enable the Wall Street Journal skill on any device with Amazon Alexa. Get all of our podcasts, as well as the latest news and market updates. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Money Beat. We hope you like what you hear. And if you are interested in more podcasts from the Wall Street Journal, we have a lot out there for you to choose from. You can find us uh, you can find us. We are at WSJ. What is it? WSJ.com slash podcasts. Yeah, I'm sorry. What I was just going to say, like, I, I the, the, whoever rewrote that, like, little script, it, the you old one was beautiful. Hey, you know, by the way, you don't have to let people know that I'm reading from a script. You can, <laughs> there's no reason. To, you I'm to, trying to help you. You don't have to pull back the curtain you. that much. I guess I was kind of flubbing it anyhow. Hey, uh, listen, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are at WSJ Podcasts. You can find us. We are on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, your Google Play Music app, Amazon Echo, Amazon Tap. If you want to write us, we always, we want to hear from you. We hope you like these and we want to hear from you. We want your opinion on them. So uh, you can write us. We are podcasts at DowJones.com. And we were talking about the French elections before. Now we're going to shift the focus to the United States. Earnings season is still going on, but for one important industry, it's pretty much over. It's time to kind of put a bow on the banks. We have assembled our roundtable of journal bank experts, our in-house roundtable, David Riley, Rachel Louise Ensign, Telus Demos, and of course, Stephen Grosser. So who wants to, who wants to go first? Who wants to, who wants to go first here on the banks? Grosser. Well, I'll just ask the question. Yeah. 
What was the biggest surprise this earnings season from the banks? I think the biggest surprise was the one that didn't do what everyone expected, which was Goldman Sachs. And that was the the negative surprise. Um, And Goldman, their trading revenue was just nowhere near what anyone expected. All the other big banks had big gains in their trading revenue. Probably on the other side, the big surprise was uh, Citigroup that did so well on its fixed income trading. And Goldman's fixed income trading was just flat versus a year earlier. And which is bad relative to the other banks, but it's really bad when you consider that a year ago, the first quarter was terrible. I mean, the world was coming to an end. China was going to fall off a cliff. No, I I like quoting the headline we had on one of the Goldman stories from the first quarter last year where they're like basically said there's none of our business lines look good. Right. And and so you think with such a low bar to clear, they should have cleared it no problem. And so everybody on the street was just totally taken aback by that. I mean, Goldman stock was down 5% the day of earnings. So that to me was the biggest – well, it's just that's sort of the mystery that nobody knows exactly, you know, was there some one big position that went wrong? Did they have to take a write down? Were they just overall positioned incorrectly? I mean, they said it was commodities, oil wasn't very volatile. They said corporate credit, there wasn't much activity. But then the next day, Morgan Stanley reported and they said corporate credit was fine. Commodities were fine. And Morgan Stanley had a great quarter. Well, and I think that that's why when you think about the overall quarter, even though everyone's results, Goldman aside, were pretty solid, it's possibly why you know it didn't really thrill analysts and the market is because that that black box of trading, right? Like we don't really know why Goldman was down. We don't really know why everyone else was up either. Like there's just not a lot of clarity coming out of like what exactly is the trade that everyone's putting on at the moment. Like we keep hearing about how hedge funds aren't making any money. Uh, you know, uh, mutual, you know, active managers, you know, across the complex are struggling. So it's it's you know you can attribute it to things like you know obviously people are looking at what rates might do later this year. So there's some positioning around that. A lot of it was attributed to corporates, like big corporations. I think what happens is when they issue debt, they sometimes also, you know, kind of hedge some of their risk when they're doing that. Obviously, it was a huge quarter for debt issuance, everybody trying to get ahead of possibly rising rates later in the year. But I think that I think that that Goldman miss spilled over and spooked everyone a little bit about you know, just sort of in this, you know, kind of post-Volker world, wh- what what are these trading desks? Where do they really make money? And then there's a lot of uncertainty about what might happen going forward, like wh- wh- whether regulation will change. Will that be good for Goldman and bad for others, bad for Goldman, good for others? There's just there's still a lot of uncertainty about that. And I think investors aren't really willing to, like, pay a ton of money necessarily, you know, to, to buy these future trading revenues because they're just well, not Well, maybe sure not about the trading them. revenues, but I mean, let's face it, investors have bid up banks massively since the election. Um, so, And that sort of has come off since March. So if you look at, I was just before we came on, I was looking at the uh, KBW Bank Index since the beginning of March, I think is down about 6%. The regional bank index down about three percent, but there's still the the that's coming off a really quick ramp since the election. That that's interesting because that follows like the sort of end of the Trump trade. Um, you saw the markets across the board. The the stocks have benefited from this pro growth. The, the supposed pro growth policies that are coming down the road from Trump really did fade in March. But that was also a big question I think for the banks heading into this earnings season was. 
you know, what, were they going to be seeing any benefits from the Trump administration or seeing any benefits from a rise, uh, you know, in rates with the Fed having raised, uh, increased rates twice? Um, did we see any of that? Well, through? I was going to say, let's go to Rachel here on this, and but just to with the idea yeah. that you know this what we're sound maybe a little too negative. This was not a bad quarter for the no, banks. No. This is a good quarter for the banks. So, I mean, the question is, you know, what happened lending and margins, Rachel? It's a good question. I would say that you have to remember when the Trump trade was at its strongest for banks was also as rates were starting to rise. So we had the longer term rates ticking up, and also the Fed finally started to hike again and hike two more times. So that's very good for banks, too, and it, it really helps their profit margins. But other than that, there hasn't really been anything material from the Trump administration. There's a lot of hopefulness still. You know, the banks are still talking about their customers being optimistic, very hopeful, but loan growth is still slowing down at almost all the banks. And there is nothing concrete in terms of tax reform or changes in even how the bank examiners examine the banks. I mean, you didn't hear any of that on the call. So what these banks are actually getting from Trump is is very minimal, and it's much more that they have gotten a significant amount of help from rising rates. What about, Rachel, you've looked at this as you said mentioned the slowing loan growth. Did you hear any good reasons for why, especially in business lending, that's been slowing? Um, I, I was surprised to hear a lot of the bank CEOs just say what they've been saying since the election, which is we think people are still very optimistic about businesses. So business borrowers are very optimistic about changes and the economy picking up under Trump. And they will borrow someday, maybe in the second half, but they're not borrowing now. I mean, I wonder how long banks can keep saying that when loan growth just isn't happening. And one big question this quarter is like, will the slowing loan growth weigh down the the benefit from higher rates? And it did a little bit, but in the end, the benefit of higher rate, higher rates was so much greater than any pain from slowing loan growth that uh, it was it was a very good quarter for a lot of the banks. And that speaks very much to the divergence we've seen a lot in the economy and the economic data, where the sentiment surveys, the soft data has been very strong, while the you know the hard data has been a lot more muddled in terms of lending. I mean, I, how much does this speak to? Because a lot of the policies, you know, have sort of, you know, some of them have stumbled out of the gate. But deregulation, taxes, if you're a business, it strikes me you have to be in a wait and see mode before you start, you know, coming to looking to expand and borrow money from a bank. Did did any of the banks talk to that? Yeah, so that is what a lot of the, the banks are saying. But I mean, there are actually, there are folks who have done research on this. And it, that explanation seems like it might not completely hold water. I mean, people have done research as to whether whether over the last few years companies really did hold back in, in their borrowing because they didn't like the regulatory policies of the Obama era. And there's some research that shows that that didn't actually happen and that the level of business borrowing has been normal and there's no reason to think that it's going to go up like 12% now. Well, what about the uncertainty? That was sort of one of my, I guess, the, what I didn't articulate very well, is the uncertainty of not knowing what the regulatory environment's going to look like or what your taxes are going to look like. Well, I think that's what, you, what we've heard a lot of bank CEOs say is that, and what Rachel was just mentioning as well, is that there's a lot of optimism out there, but there's not necessarily confidence. Mm-hmm. And it's that sort of, you know, how do you get from optimism to confidence? And the difference being you're optimistic, hey, business is going to be good. But that doesn't mean you pull the trigger on taking down a, a lending line 
because you want to invest that or expand. And that's what the banks are waiting for. They're, they're waiting for confidence that leads to more activity and more lending. I think it also, what we're seeing as well in these bank results is that split between uh, the the activities of like very large kind of global corporations and then kind of smaller to middle size kind of growing businesses because what we what we did see is that um, you know it's it, big companies actually took on a lot of new debt um, last quarter but that mostly came in the form of issuing bonds and other kinds of capital markets type transactions which are you know heavily used by, you know, big S&P 500 companies, not so much by smaller businesses. And so those bank loan books, however, are a little more um, tilted towards, um, you know, or, or at least a lot of the, the, the growth one would hope would come from those kind of more expanding, younger, or kind of smaller businesses. And those are the people that are the most impacted by this uncertainty. Like large corporations, um, you know, th- th- they're looking at more kind of big global macro trends. You know, they're looking at, you know, how, how is, you know, how are things going in China? Um, uh, you know, what are we seeing a turnaround in, you know, underlying European strength? Like those are the types of things they're thinking about. It's more those smaller businesses that are that are kind of maybe excited but not really ready to commit. And so that's really, I think, what we're failing to see kind of flow through the banks is them finding the ability to kind of add new borrowing customers and, you know, do more project financing versus like, okay, they're actually doing pretty well helping like large corporations kind of shuffle money around to take advantage of low rates and things like that. So so I guess the the question in my mind then becomes, did the banks do enough in this first quarter to justify the big run-up since Election Day. And if they didn't, what do they need to show in the second quarter? And even if they did, what do you expect to see in the second quarter? Well, I think they did. They did well. Everyone except for Goldman among the big banks, it seems like they did well enough to kind of keep their uh, stock price around where it is. You know, mm-hmm. But you didn't see sharp increases in really any bank stocks after earnings, even though many of them did beat expectations. Um, I think the next big thing for the banks could potentially be the stress test results and the fact that some of these banks could be returning more capital to shareholders, which would be an appealing reason theoretically to buy their shares in the future. And I don't think also that many investors were going into this thinking, well, we just had this big Trump bump in the bank shares. Now let's see the benefit of it immediately. I mean, the economy, the real world just doesn't work that way. It's not going to be in two or three months comes through. So I think people were more looking, is there anything we see in the results that would suggest to us that this is impossible? Mm-hmm. I think people are willing to wait. So as Rachel is saying, you know, it's not like the shares are ramping on the back of results, but they generally, you know, we're sort of stable. Yeah, they're, they're, they're happy. They're at least happy with the direction. Right. Right. Okay. That's fine. I guess, like, I mean, real quick, you know, it could be sort of a final question. We know, I think everyone's in agreement that Goldman was sort of the big uh, disappointment loser. Who are the the big winners from, uh, you know, this earnings season? Or modest winners? I think, I mean, I think you saw... Really, to me, I don't know if you guys agree, but I think I think City and Bank of America come out of this looking pretty well. I mean, you might also throw in J.P. Morgan, but they've they've just been so consistently strong that you know they they didn't really need much of an uplift. But but with with both City and B of A, you saw great trading results for both of those banks. That's something that investors really like to see because um, you know it's 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 just kind of. Uh, you know, operating leverage, as they call it, right? Like just just sort of, you know, growing the existing business. 
Um, and then also the capital return story that Rachel referred to. I mean, both those banks are, are ones that, you know, have been, um, you know, trading at a discount to their book value for, for you know, much of the last several years and, um, you know, can, can tell, you know, compelling stories about how they've been forced to hold too much capital, you know, by regulators. So I think those two banks are really the ones that people are, are, are probably the most excited about, you know, finally coming out of their long winters and maybe being, you know, I think also that you, I, I agree with you on those, but I think you'd also have to add Morgan Stanley to that because I think they had a really good quarter, better than people were expecting, and sort of it, it confirmed sort of that they're on the right trend path. So, so is that all the big banks except for Goldman? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, Wells, Wells Fargo. Yeah, Wells Fargo. Oh, okay. Wells, well, yeah, they're in a different bucket these days, though. Uh, okay. Rachel Louise Ensign, Telus Demos, David Riley, thank you very much for spending a little time with us. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah. you. You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, okay, everyone, thank you for listening. We'll catch up with you soon. The Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. The Claude Three Model Family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.